This is a reading from Judges. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, what shall we do for wives for those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters. For the people of Israel had sworn, cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Labona. And they commanded the people of Benjamin saying, go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, grant them graciously to us because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Good to be with you. My name is Nick Polico. I'm an associate pastor here at Trinity, serving full-time at Redemption Church, which is this congregation's extension site in Palos Heights. But I get to come be with you once a month uh, to preach, and so it's good to be with you this morning. This is a Sunday that falls in between Thanksgiving and Advent. And so this sermon today is not a part of any larger series. You can think of it sort of as a, a prelude, sort of a preface to Advent. And this um, very sordid tale, this very unusual story from the end of the book of Judges, might not at first blush seem very Advent-ish. Certainly doesn't seem very Christmas-like. And nevertheless, we're going to uh, consider the broader theme of the book of Judges as part of our preparation for the series of Advent. Judges is a difficult book. When I was a young man, I guess I'm still young in some comparatively, but a very young man, 21 years old, I took part in a semester-long Christian leadership program for young adults at a camp in upstate New York. And at one point during that semester, it was assigned to us to read the entire book of Judges in preparation for a particular conversation we were going to have. And a number of us had never read Judges all the way through before. We might have been familiar from Sunday school with some of the most famous stories about people like Samson and Gideon. But 
it was new to many of us. And I remember when we came together, one young woman in the group asked what she thought, said starkly, I hated it. And that might seem startling, you know, a young Christian woman making this bold-faced declaration about hating a portion of God's Word. But in a sense, that's precisely the right reaction to the book of Judges. Because even though its message is one about God as a good king, it, it gives us this message by showing us how much human life and society falls to pieces when God's kingship is ignored. It is a bleak book most of the time. And yet, it enables us to look at our world, which is often bleak as well. And I don't mean that in a pessimistic way. There's a great deal of joy and beauty and delight in our world, but there is also an enormous amount of calamity and violence and sorrow. The book of Judges enables us to stare these realities in the face and ask, is there meaning amidst these realities? And is there hope? And to answer, yes, there is. And there is because God himself will come and be the king who we need and will set all things right. That is, it's sort of implicit, but that is the ultimate message of the book of Judges, is that we can be awake to the calamitous realities around us and yet have confidence that God himself will come and be the king we need and set all things right. So let's pray and ask for God's help as we look more closely at this, at this text together. Father, we <clears throat> ask that as we have sung today, that you would be our vision. Help us, Lord. Would you captivate our hearts and our minds with a vision of your holiness and your goodness and your love and your faithfulness. And would you change us and transform us? And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we're going to be looking at basically this one sentence. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's this sort of ditty of a story leading up to it where wives are found for the people of Benjamin. Benjamin had been complicit in an absolutely ghastly crime of violence against a woman. And the other tribes of Israel had gone to war against the tribe of Benjamin and made a vow not to provide wives for them. And then they realized, well, we don't really want this tribe to disappear from the face of the earth. So how about we find a sort of technicality and we give them wives, not by saying, here, have our daughters, but just by letting them be vulnerable in a field so they can be kidnapped and brought to Benjamin. It doesn't play very well to my ears. It probably doesn't play very well to yours. And this is the culmination of a downward spiral that has happened all throughout the book of Judges. The, the setting here is that Moses had led God's people from slavery in Egypt to the border of the promised land. He had passed on leadership to Joshua, who had led the people into the promised land. And now once Joshua died, the people were to be living as God's people in the land he had given them, and everything should have been great. And yet we read about this cycle in the book of Judges, which begins after Joshua dies, in which the people forsake the Lord, they begin to worship idols, and as they do so, everything about their life together falls apart and disintegrates. 
And so the Lord raises up an enemy to come and attack them essentially as judgment. And in their distress, people call out to God for help. And the Lord raises up a judge to deliver them. And when you think of a judge, you can't think of somebody with a gavel and a robe, but more like a savior, more of a military savior to rescue his people, God's people, from the hand of their enemies. But then when that judge dies, the cycle repeats, and it seems to get worse and worse and worse as the book goes on. And this is a picture of what it looks like when everyone does what is right in his own eyes. That's the refrain that happens twice in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it's not just that there was no human king bringing order. Because initially, the Lord himself was meant to focus as the sole king of the Israelites in the land. But as God's authority was rejected, it became apparent that some sort of human leader acting on God's behalf was needed. Because when God's reign is cast aside, things fall apart. And thousands of years later, things aren't really any different. Our historical circumstances have changed. And it might be easy to read a book like this and think, we are not like these warring tribes. Here we are in 21st century America. We don't leave women alone in a field to be captured and forced into marriages. But friends, in the days of the judges when all of these atrocities were taking place, this society wasn't all bad either. People still farmed the land and loved their children and went to worship and engaged in everyday activities. And yet it was a society in which terrible exploitation, treachery, all manner of unfaithfulness from one human to another took place. And these sorts of things happen in our world, in our very region, every single day. Terrible abuses and crimes. Some even in the church of Jesus Christ at large. Now, do you feel encouraged yet, church? Thank you. Good. Yeah, this is, uh, this is bleak, but there is actually an enormous amount of encouragement to be found in the fact that the Bible gives us this bleak diagnosis of the human condition and, and shows us these sordid tales. And it's because it helps us to deal with this question that every single one of us has wrestled with when we look at how much things fall apart around us. And that question is, where is God and why does he allow these things to be so? You know, when a domestic abuse situation ends in a man going to a hospital in Chicago and shooting four innocent people, where is God and why does he let these things happen? And sometimes when this question is asked by us or by others, it's coming from a place of anger against God, sort of shaking a fist at heaven, well, if God is there, why does he let this take place? And sometimes it just comes from a place of brokenheartedness. It's, Lord, why? Why? And the reason there's encouragement to be found in this book of Judges and in its harrowing tales of human disintegration 
is first of all because if we really think about it, if we shake our fist at heaven and say, why do you let this take place, God? It's actually a testimony to us that we know God is there. Because there's no reason to be angry at a God who isn't there. And if the universe is only a cosmic accident and it's only matter in motion, and at the end of the day it's meaningless and one day will just collapse on itself and be dissolved, and and survival of the fittest is, is all there is, there's no sense being angry about anything. There's no sense being angry at the laws of physics. It's only if the world is at root a place where love is meant to reign because it is the most foundational reality of the universe. It's only if the universe is meant to be an orderly and righteous place that it makes any sense to be distraught when it is disorderly and chaotic. And so our very temptation to shake our fist at heaven is testimony to us that we know he is there or else who are we crying out to in anger? And for the person who asked that question, where is God, not from a declaration that he can't possibly be there, but it's more from a a place of brokenheartedness. And Lord, it is just so burdensome to bear the weight of the world and to see the suffering that takes place every day. It is good for us that the Bible doesn't present us with a sort of sterilized, unrealistic optimism. If we went to God's Word for hope and found that it was blissfully ignorant about how bad things can really be, we wouldn't be able to find any hope. It wouldn't be a credible source of truth. It wouldn't be able to light our way through a dark world. But God's Word holds up a mirror to the world in its worst horror and says that it is in that very world where God's redemption is taking place. It is through the very worst of humanity where God is active to bring about his story of redemption. That doesn't necessarily answer all of our questions or tie things up neatly, but it lets us know that according to the Word of God, Human sin and violence is no indication that God isn't present because God comes to humanity at our worst and brings his story of redemption forward. And so we're able to to change our question from God, why do you allow this, to God, how can you give me hope in the midst of this, knowing that he will give an answer. So we see, first of all, this cycle of disintegration in the book of Judges. The second thing we see which grows from this is that what we need is an incorruptible king. We need an incorruptible king to rule us. Now, we're Americans and we like democracy, so we don't typically walk around thinking about needing a king. Our country was founded upon a revolt against the king. And if you look around the world and you look at the countries that are monarchies and countries that are democracies, you would probably, I know I would, rather live in a democracy. And I think we should give thanks that we do and celebrate that. However, 
we shouldn't have a sort of triumphalistic understanding of our political system because it is predicated, it is based upon the reality of a, a very unfortunate reality of the fact that human beings are not trustworthy. The fact that human beings are fallen and not trustworthy is the very basis upon which democracy is built. That's why we need a separation of powers and a system of checks and balances. Because you can't just have one person making the laws. You have to have a Congress of multiple people making the laws. And not just one house, but two houses. And then you have to have an executive to enact it. The laws that are passed by the legislative branch. But if the president vetoes something they do, they can create a supermajority to override him. And then there's a judicial branch which can say, no, you've all gotten it wrong. Because nobody can be trusted, ultimately. And that is why democracy exists. So we can celebrate that we live in a relatively peaceful and just place compared to many other kingdoms or, or societies in the world. But we should also recognize that those very freedoms are built upon an understanding that human beings can't be trusted and therefore even a Society like ours, which we are glad to live in, can't fully and finally solve the human predicament. And this is so contrary to so much political optimism, kind of from across the spectrum, both sides of the aisle, in which we so often talk about this inevitable transcending of all of our ills. This inevitable march toward a almost utopian future. And we see in the book of Judges, however, that when God's authority is cast aside, when everyone does what is right in his own eyes, there is disintegration. And even with a relatively good political system, every human being has a propensity to cast off God's authority and to do what is right in his or her own eyes. Now, I am not suggesting that we should be passive or, or disengaged while we simply wait for Jesus to come back. I'm just saying we need to have realistic expectations of what can be accomplished in any human society. But I do think that this, this longing or, or this, this need for a king who will one day come and make all things new and make all things right, is something that every single one of us has seen on display and maybe experienced in our heart. Whenever there is a presidential campaign and there's a candidate who many people find profoundly compelling, what I'm getting at is this. Last 10 seconds, you might have wait, what is he talking about? What I'm saying is this. We are looking at the book of Judges, and I'm making the case that Judges shows us that in the human heart is a longing for a king who will come and set things right. But that longing might not be something we are always awake to. We not, might, always not, might not always be awake to or conscious of. But reflect for a moment on the last two presidents of the United States. Profoundly different human beings. And you might love one and despise the other or feel like you can't stand either or, or have a nuanced view of both. It doesn't matter. Both of them won because they were able to persuade their core followers that they were the embodiment of hope for this country. President Obama's campaign signs were a picture of his face with the word hope. 
Donald Trump, at his acceptance speech of the nomination, unfolded the problems of our country as he understands them and said, I alone can fix it. And many people embrace both of these candidates because of this longing we have for there to be one leader who can come and make things right. The reason it's important for us to see that this is a false hope is because it enables us not to think too highly of ourselves, not to think highly of our leaders in the church or in the civic world, and to remember that they need our our help and our support and our prayers. One of my seminary professors named Jay Sklar had his classes repeat a mantra that he had been given by one of his seminary professors where we were simply supposed to say in unison as seminary students preparing for ministry, I am not the Christ. I am not the Savior. Jeff Ziegler and I are not the ones who can come and usher in fully and finally the kingdom of God and make Trinity and Redemption churches everything they could possibly be or should possibly be. And so very practically, I just want to ask you, in light of this need we have for an incorruptible king, I want to ask you to pray for us because we cannot be that incorruptible king for you. We are fallen human beings, and by the way, that's part of why we're Presbyterian, and we have a system of checks and balances and accountability. Would you pray for us? I mean, really, on a regular basis, that God, in His mercy, would enable our lives not to blow up like so many of the lives of even most of the best heroes in the book of Judges. That He would enable us to be faithful and wholeheartedly ready and willing to live for Him and to serve you. We need an incorruptible king. But that is the king that we are promised. As the story of Israel goes forward, we come eventually to King David, who's raised up, and he's a pretty good king. At times, he's an excellent king. But he too is a corruptible king. And his descendants really blow it until all of God's people go into exile and are wondering, will we ever have a king again? And we are told in Isaiah chapter 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, who was the father of David, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. This is a promise of Jesus who will come and bring in an age that no political system, no political party, no political leader, and no ecclesiastical church strategic plan can usher in. And so finally, the third thing we see from the book of Judges is how we are to, how we are to respond. And that is with sincere devotion to our king. This is the point of the book of Judges. That we need a king and that we have to be wholeheartedly 
in his service. Now, it can feel actually sort of oppressive to our soul to be told, God is king and you need to submit to him. It can feel to a human being almost dehumanizing to think of ourselves as being subject to anyone. And the reason it is not is because of the sort of king we have, a king who comes to us with compassion. There was a, a story uh, the other day, and this is a nonpartisan story. Uh, my motivation for reading it is nonpartisan. But on the day before Thanksgiving, some of you probably saw this, President Obama, former President Obama, paid a visit to a local food bank on Chicago's northwest side ahead of Thanksgiving. Wearing a White Sox hat and latex gloves, he assisted 60 volunteers with food packing at the Greater Chicago Food Depository and said, you guys are doing such a great job helping out. And he told two young volunteers, I mean young, like this high, who asked him for a hug, I'm really proud of you, as he bent down and held them. The reason that sort of story makes it into the news cycle, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, is because we all love a story about a person in power coming and being among his people or her people and associating with the lowly, identifying with them. And so a a former president wearing his local baseball cap and blue jeans coming into a modest place hugging children and bagging potatoes is a moving story. And this is just a dim picture of what we have in our God. Because in Jesus Christ, God came and he was born into the most meager of circumstances. Having taken on human flesh to be among us and to be one of us calling together a band of friends and followers who are not impressive people, showing mercy to the poor, compassion to the sick, addressing injustice, and then riding into Jerusalem, not on a chariot or on a war horse, but on a humble donkey, and going to his death on a cross in our place so that our sins could be removed from us, so that he could conquer death in his resurrection, and so that repentance and forgiveness of sins could be preached in his name to all nations, even to people in this room, thousands of years later and thousands of miles from where these things took place. Jesus is a king who subdues us, but he does so because he loves us. And he does so by means of his love for us, by which he persuades us that service to him is what will actually make us more fully human and not less fully human. So really briefly, what this means for us, kind of coming in for a landing. It means that we need to remember as we move into this Advent season, which is a season about waiting, Remembering the first time Christ came, yes, but also looking forward to his next coming. Remembering that Jesus is our king right now. Like right now, Jesus is king and head of this congregation in Hinsdale, Illinois, in Palos Heights, Illinois. And it means for us 
I think most profoundly and the thing that challenges me the most as a pastor, that the most important thing that will determine the health and success of our congregation is not how great we are at planning for the future, but how devoted we are to our King. At the start of the book of Judges, we are told that the Israelites failed to fully drive out the previous inhabitants of the land as the Lord had instructed. So their their military strategy by which they were meant to clear the land of idolatry so it could be a place where the whole world could look and see this is what it looks like when people worship the living God. Their military strategy was subpar and ineffective. But what we see is that the root problem was not actually poor strategic planning. It was half-hearted devotion to God as their king. And so that means that for me as a pastor right now, you know, the year's ending while we're making plans with regards to budget and we're thinking down at Palos about men's ministry and children's ministry and we're trying to strategize and engage in more effective ministry in all these ways. What it means for me is that we could roll out impressive-looking strategic plans and yet in our hearts be living as though we had no king and doing what is right in our own eyes. I was thinking this week about the book Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges. Has anyone ever read that book? A few hands. I have not read it. But it's got a really helpful title and table of contents. And there are some books where, like, that's almost all you need. Just the title of the book and the table of contents. It's called Respectable Sins. And the chapters are about things like anxiety and discontentedness and ingratitude and pride and selfishness and a lack of self-control, irritability, having a critical spirit, envy, sins of the tongue like gossip, And the point of the book is that there are all sorts of sins that if they're exposed, they don't cause any scandal. Nobody says, did you hear the pastor of such and such a church said something critical the other day? Or or did you hear that a deacon at such and such a church isn't really grateful for his job or whatever it might be? These things aren't scandalous. And so it's sort of easy for us to make peace with them in ourselves and in one another. And so, to be incredibly and profoundly practical, as we move into the season of Advent, and as we, as churches that are still seeking to strategize and move forward, I want to encourage us to ask, where are the respectable sins in our life that we are just tolerating? Because those present a far greater threat to the health and future of our congregations, than any lack of material resources, any lack of strategic planning, you know, inadequacy. Jesus is king now. He's ruling us now. And he also loves us now and can be fully trusted now. And so as we serve him under his reign, as we wait for him, What are those things in our lives that we tolerate that actually keep us from living more fully as though we had a king and as though we endeavor to do what is right in his eyes? 
Let's consider these things and let's do battle against them. We take some time weekly at the conclusion of the sermon to quietly confess our sins to God. And so I want to invite you to do that for a moment and to think, you know, you might have a sin in your life that is scandalous, and it's certainly appropriate to confess that, but you might also want to consider what are those things that aren't, that are respectable, so to speak, that I need to walk away from. So let's take some time, and then I will close our time together. Lord, we thank you for our King. Father, for our King, Jesus Christ, your Son. We thank you that he is mighty and merciful, that he is majestic and powerful in holiness, seated at your right hand, and he is tender and compassionate. And we thank you for the cross where our sins were paid for. We are open and laid bare before you. Nothing is hidden from your sight. Lord, help us to live more fully and more freely under your benevolent and righteous reign. Forgive us for our sins because of Jesus and make us new, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear this good news of the gospel from Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Brothers and sisters, through faith in Jesus Christ, our King, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.